Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to be together once again. Uh, Lord willing, if I do my job and the plan works, we will complete chapter 5 in our confession today. So we've worked through the doctrine of providence. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. It, it has been to, to me to study through this afresh. It's been a not just in an academic sense, but at, at a soul level. It's been a great encouragement to be reminded of the, the nature and the extent of God's providential rule. We're going to be considering today the very last paragraph. It's one of my favorite paragraphs in all of our confession. It's very, very short. It's only one sentence, but it is the, the, the subject matter, the promises implied here are very, very sweet and precious uh, to the souls of God's people. So let's pray and ask for His Spirit to instruct us and also encourage us from His Word and from those things that are most surely believed among us. Father, we are grateful for Your many mercies. We're thankful that Your Word tells us so clearly, so plainly, that You rule and govern all things from the greatest to the least, and that in a most special manner, you purpose all things and you govern all things for the profit, for the good, for the health of your church, and for the glory of your own name. We give you thanks for that, that fact. We give you thanks that you've shared that fact with us. And we give you thanks that this may be a, a source of encouragement to our minds, uh, to our souls, to our affections. And we pray that you will build us up and firmly establish us in this very truth. We ask this in Christ. Amen. So we've been looking at, over the last couple of weeks, in paragraphs 5 and 6, this sort of seems like a conundrum. What do we do with, with the concept of evil? and wickedness, and sin. And, and we saw that in paragraph 5, that God actually makes use of sin and evil even among his own people. That there are, there are times, in fact, the language in our confession is oftentimes God will leave for a season his own people to the corruptions of our flesh so that those hidden weaknesses and corruptions can be exposed and brought to light and so that we can grow in a greater dependence upon the Lord Jesus. And then, of course, last week, we considered providence and the reprobate, how God uses evil, uses the natural, sinful, fallen condition of man for his own condemnation and for the, the accomplishment of other good ends that God has in mind. And so we've seen God's use of sin to accomplish his very good purposes, especially in and among his people, but even among his enemies. And what we discover throughout the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments, is that God interacts with man by way of covenant. And so what I want to do is here in just a moment, we're going to turn to the Noahic Covenant. There is one covenant that God has made with all of mankind, which is central to our understanding of providence in general. And then we're going to look at how God's providence works particularly. So that's really our two ideas for today in this last paragraph, is the universality of providence, but also the, particu the particular nature of providence. So we have a universality, but we also have a particularity when it comes to God's providential rule. So here is the text itself in our confession. It's, again, very short. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a more special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. You turn first of all, I mentioned we'll go to the Noahic Covenant in Genesis 9, but I want to look at a couple of the footnotes that are in our confession first. And we'll kind of work backwards as they're listed here. Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 43, this is what we read, beginning in verse 3. 
For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples, in exchange for your life. So here we see a picture of God governing all things, where he says, I, I, God has the ability, the authority, the power to say something like this, I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life. Now again, this is, this is the prophet writing to the people of God in a time of exile, and he's reminding them that God covenantally has dealt with them in such a way that he, the Canaanites were utterly destroyed. They were given over to destruction given over to the edge of the sword for the sake of God's people. He dispossessed one people so that his own people could take possession according to his promise. Well then, if we turn from there over to the prophet Amos. In Amos chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. So here, even among his even among his people who have the outward sign of the covenant, circumcision, ten of the tribes were destroyed. They broke covenant with God, and, and, and after uh, the, the, the rebellion of Solomon's sons, the kingdoms were split. The northern tribes, the ten in the north, they ceased to exist. They were utterly subsumed into their captivity. But God preserved Judah, and Judah alone, the southern tribes. And he says, I will not utterly destroy the house Jacob. Well, I think this has significant implications for our understanding of God's covenantal dealings, for one. The covenant of circumcision is gone. It's null and void. Because even the coming of Christ, what happened to the tribe of Judah? It also was destroyed temple, everything was destroyed. So the covenant of circumcision is dead. There's no part of that that we import into the New Testament. So let's think here, first of all, about the universality of God's providential ruling. Because we, we see that hinted at in Isaiah 50 or 43 and Amos chapter 9. But we want to see the, 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 the universality of God's covenant dealings. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9. This is immediately following the flood in which God destroyed all flesh upon the earth except Noah and his wife, their three sons and their respective wives only were accepted. Beginning verse 1 of chapter 9, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, 
Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So here is God making a covenant through Noah. Who are the parties to this covenant? Who's involved in this covenant that God has made with Noah? Hmm? All of mankind. Who else is a party to this? All living creatures. So we can say this is a universal covenant, right? In fact, God repeats that multiple times here in Genesis 9, in fact, even closes that section. this section, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So all mankind, all of the descendants of Noah and his sons, well, that would be everyone, without exception, all are descendants of Noah and his sons. Well, there, there are two particular themes that emerged throughout the scriptures. One is, is God's universal reign. And we see this instituted here in uh, Genesis chapter 9. We have a, a common kingdom. God here is establishing the warrant for civil government, for example. You know, it's not in Exodus 20 at Sinai that God gives a, a warrant for civil government. It's here, first of all, in Genesis 9. There has to be some mechanism, some means, whereby a man who sheds blood can be punished by other men. That's what we're told in the text. And so that there is a warrant here for the establishment of some sort of judicial process, some governing entity. And these are all part of what we could call common kingdom. And God rules and reigns and governs in this common kingdom. And he's even given us a sign a rainbow in the sky to remind us and to signify to us that God has indeed promised. Number one, he will never destroy the earth again by water. And also, that in seed time and harvest, as long as the earth remains, that these natural processes will continue. But they will continue by, by what rule? By what power? Well, by the providential rule of God. He sends the rain, for example, upon both the wicked and the righteous, the just and the unjust. He sends the clouds, the water, the sun, all in due season. All men have the opportunity to, to have families and, and raise children and have ordinary occupations and vocations and jobs and houses and ordinary things. So there is a universality to God's providential rule, and we, and we see that throughout the Scriptures. But we also see, and this is really the subject of, of our confession in, in paragraph 7, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures. So it's an acknowledgement that that is true. It is not the case that God rules and governs his people, but everything else is left to chance. Nothing is left to chance. So even this idea of, well, there's, there's secular and there's sacred, and God governs the sacred, but everything else is left to the world, to the pagans. Well, that isn't true, or at least not wholly true. There is a particular way, we'll look at that next, that God governs and rules and abides with his people. But God universally, not only with every man, but with every, even the creatures of the field, 
the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, God is covenantally in relationship with his creation. And we see that in the Noahic covenant. There are significant implications. I uh, had opportunity this, this past week uh, to study under uh, Dr. David Van Drunen from Westminster and Escondido and looking at the doctrine of two kingdoms. And one of the things that he's done, I think, well, uh, as a big help in, in his studies and research is to demonstrate how many of the things that we understand as the common kingdom are rooted here in the Noahic Covenant. Civil governments, ordinary human institutions, um, whether these are charitable institutions such as you know, hospitals or orphanages or mercy ministries, or whether they are civil governments, trade, trade unions and, and various institutions, all of those are rooted in this common kingdom. And, and God providentially rules and governs in that sphere. But let's think now how the, the second half of this, this last paragraph encourages us as believers to recognize that it is true that God's providential rule extends to everything, so that, such that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the Lord's knowing it. And yet, so after a most special manner, it, meaning providence of God, taketh care of his church. Now, I find this statement marvelous. And by that, I mean it is a, it is a, 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 a subject on which I marvel. Because if we think about this, that not, there's not an atom, there's not a molecule, there's not a quark or whatever the smallest divisible units are in the whole universe that are random. Not one. So God has very carefully, very precisely ordered everything down to a level of, of, of rule and minutia that we can't even comprehend. Whether we look into a telescope and examine the heavens and to see every, every star, every planet, everything in the universe is moving and it is in motion according to God's decree. And it is by the word of Christ that it is kept there. Or we look into a microscope and, and, the, and the smallest things that the human mind can even conceive of, God is ruling and reigning and governing at that minute level. And yet, somehow, in a more special way, he takes care of his church. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? That, that he would rule and reign to that degree within all of creation, but somehow... More so than that, how do you get more than that? I don't know. I can't explain it to you. But I, think that I, but I agree with what we confess. And I think the scriptures are clear about that. If you'll turn with me to, to 2 Samuel, I want to show you a couple places where we see God speaking and dealing specifically with his people in the midst of his providential rule over all things. Because the scriptures make this clear. That it is true that God governs all things, but there is a more particular way that he governs and cares for his own people. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, and of course this is the giving of what we know as the Davidic covenant. God speaks to David. David had purpose to make a house for the Lord because he saw, I dwell in a house made of cedar, but God dwells in a tent. That's not right. I want to make a house for the Lord. And of course the Lord turns this around in more ways than one and says, you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. But it's going to be an eternal, perpetual house with one of your own sons sitting on that throne for eternity. So look at verse 18. We won't read the whole chapter, but picking up at verse 18. King David went, out, went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. 
And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. So what is David saying? He's marveling that God would make a covenant with him on behalf of the people of Israel. And David said, what God is like this? Who governs everything, but has set his affections on one particular nation. And David just just meditating upon this as he cries out to the Lord in praise and says, what kind of God would do such a gracious thing? What kind of God would call out one particular people and set them apart from the nations? Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? You see, there's a particularity. He's ruling and governing all things. And, and, he could, and, and God, by his power and sovereignty and authority, can say to David, these things will take place even long after you're gone. And yet David had the confidence to say, this is, this is true, and God has, has dealing particularly in his providential rule, his redemptive rule of his people. I'll we'll turn to one other place, uh, Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 contains one of the most misused and misquoted and, and abused texts in the Old Testament. As we, you know, here we are in, in early February, but we anticipate the you know, graduation season coming up. And, and if there's one verse that I see over and over and over again, you, we don't have, a, I don't think, very many brick-and-mortar Christian bookstores anymore, but inevitably, when you go into a Lifeway or a, a Mardell or a Christian booksellers around graduation, Jeremiah 29 Verse uh, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's on every graduate's coffee mug, calendar, study Bible, the whole deal, right? What is God talking about there? Let's, let's back up and actually get a running start to understand what's happening. Jeremiah is writing to a people in exile that according to God's righteous word, he has delivered his people over, just as he said, the people of Judah, into the hands of the Babylonians. And God has said, you will be there for how long? 70 years. We're talking multiple generations to be there. What are the people to do while they are there in the occupation of another nation, an enemy nation? They are, they, are, they are driven from the, the land of covenant. They are driven from that, that tangible expression of God's covenant faithfulness. Are they just to abandon any thoughts of God's covenant faithfulness? No. Let's begin at verse 4. Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for i know the plans i have for you for y'all declares the lord plans for welfare and not for evil 
to give you a future and a hope. Notice that the promises here are, number one, they're corporate promises, not individual. But number two, they are redemptive promises, not material. I mean, certainly the land is, we could say, is material, but, that, but that, even that material promise is, is the, the necessary tie to spiritual blessings under the Old Covenant. So these promises, contrary to what it, how it is presented to you on the coffee mug and the calendar and the study Bible, are not individualistic, nor are they material. The promises are corporate. The promise was given to the nation that is now in exile. And what is the promise that is given to that nation? Not only the land, but a seed. A person. A son of David who would come. And that God is working all things, even the chastisement of his people, by means of an exile in Babylon, to accomplish his redemptive rule, his particular care for his church. So after a most special manner, the providence of God is here taking care of his Old Testament church. Now, how, how is it that we think about this statement after a most special manner? Because again, the, the, the dilemma, or at least maybe to me it feels like a dilemma, maybe you wouldn't feel this, but it feels like a dilemma to me that we could say God rules everything from the least to the greatest, but somehow in a most special way. He takes care of his church. How is that? I think the answer is the kind of rule that God extends to his people. It is not only a physical, not only a material, not only a common rule that's, that's universal, but it is a particular redemptive and spiritual rule that is reserved only for his people. In the Noahic Covenant, what did God say about the forgiveness of sins? Nothing. What did God say about redemption? What did he say about reconciliation to himself? What did he say about a redeemer? Nothing. Because that promise was not extended to all mankind. The promise extended to all mankind was life, was order, was justice. In fact, it was a command, both a promise and a command, to do justice. If a man's blood is shed, his blood also ought to be shed. Matthew. Yeah. Right, right. And so what we have here is, is, a, is an expression of God's common rule over all mankind, but there's nothing there about his particular rule, but that comes just a few chapters later, beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, when God calls Abram and begins to put special, particular promises upon Abram and the people that would come from Abram, and then Abraham. And then, of course, those promises are made even more particular because it was Isaac and not Ishmael. And then, yet again, in the next generation, more particular than that, it was Jacob and not Esau. So the tree forks, and it gets narrower and narrower. Then we get to, to David. It's become even more particular. It's the tribe of Judah only. And of the tribe of Judah, it's the son of David that would come. So God is ruling in a particular way. Now, Jim Renahan quotes here from Thomas, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin. And I'm going to read the quote. It's, it's a longer quote, so I may stop and, and make some comments as I go. But this is really helpful for us to think about the contrast between God's common rule and God's particular redemptive providential rule for the sake of his church. And Goodwin makes the distinction, one is physical and the other is spiritual, primarily. He says the reason of this is, let's get in, commenting on this, this, this idea that it's after a most special manner, the providence of God taketh care of the church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. Here's a good one. The reason of this is because the building of God's church is his own business in a more special manner, more than any other. Therefore, he will be sure to do it himself and more immediately be seen in it. So you see, there's number one, immediate. And immediate here doesn't mean fast or quick. It means directly. 
If, if, if I speak to you immediately, it means I'm not going through someone else. I'm not passing a message on. I'm speaking to you directly, or I'm dealing directly with you. So therefore, God will be sure to do it himself and more immediately be seen in this. Again, in that providential rule. As it is said of Christ personal, the tabernacle of his human nature. He references Hebrews 9, verse 12, that it was not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building, as the apostle there speaks. That is, it was not framed by the power of nature, as other men are, but by the Spirit. So it is true of Christ, mystical, his body, and the tabernacle of his church. It is not of the ordinary make that other societies of men, whether families or kingdoms, are of. It is not made with hands, with human wisdom or power as they are, that is to say, is not of this building. So you see what he's saying. The, the, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And so that God is immediately, by the person of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, is engaged in this work. So that the writer of Hebrews said, in fact, Christ has built and indeed occupies a temple not made with human hands. So the distinction in God's providential rule is those things that are physical, those things that are earthly, are not necessarily bad, but they're common. And that includes even our families, even our marriages. We think back to Jeremiah 29, when he says to them, build houses and live in them. Well, what is distinctly Christian about building a house and living in it? I mean, hopefully... We, we will dedicate that to the Lord, that we will, we will prayerfully consider how the Lord might use that home as a place of hospitality and blessings for others. So there's hopefully with that building of a, of a house and living in it that there is a Godward focus and, and an orientation of our hearts that would want to glorify God in that. But the actual possessing of a house, I mean, as Christians, we go through the same mortgage process. We use the same kind of realtors. We, we, we pay the same things. We, we, all, everything is common, right? Jeremiah goes on to say, plant gardens and eat their produce. Is there any distinctly Christian thing about the food we eat? No. Uh, in, in, under the Old Covenant, there was a distinction. You weren't allowed to eat certain things that God had declared unclean. But for the Christian, is, our, is, our, is the food we eat distinct from what our you know, ordinary pagan neighbors would eat? No. I mean, Paul makes the, the one probably exception to that. If it's a food we know it has been offered to idols, then that, that should give us at least a pause. And for the sake of not offending someone else's conscience, maybe we wouldn't partake. But even that is not an absolute, is it? Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Again, these are all common kingdom pursuits. Among all the Babylonians, the Israelites would have been doing the very same things in many respects, having children, having families. You're there for 70 years, guys, get comfortable. Build your houses, and while you're there, pray for the welfare of that city. Now, isn't that doesn't that seem contradictory? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? Here we are, captive. We've been literally ripped from our homes, driven, mar forced marched into a new land where, where the language is different, the customs are different. We're surrounded by their pagan ideas. And God says, put down roots. Build houses. Build institutions. He, we could say, we could add to this. It's not here in, in, in the text, but write songs. Write music. Write books. Produce things. Build, build furniture. Build things that are lasting and enduring and beautiful for God's name's sake. But those are all common things. So I'm going to pick back up with Goodwin's quote. He says, thus, Hebrews 3, 4 Every house, says the apostle, is built by some man. That is, all kingdoms, families, and societies, God in an ordinary providence leaves to men to build in their own way. I mean, there are certain principles of engineering, right? Is there anything distinct about a Christian engineer? 
Well, hopefully he's honest. But, I mean, you'd want your pagan engineer to be honest too, wouldn't you? About his specs and materials and, and so forth. Your physician, your surgeon, your plumber, your architect, your electrician, your mechanic. There's nothing distinct, distinctively Christian about those pursuits other than the, the motives of the heart of the man or woman involved. But the, the thing itself is just part of a common kingdom. And it is, it is God's providence. He uses ordinary, common, physical means to, to accomplish those things. So picking back up with Goodwin. God, in an ordinary providence, leaves to men to build in their own way. But, says he, he that built all things is God, which is spoken of God's building his church, which is his house, and all things appertaining unto, as is evident both by the foregoing words, verse 3, from about Hebrews, he that built the house, the apostle speaking of Christ who is God, hath more honor than the house. And also, by those words that follow after, Moses was faithful in all his house, namely, in building of that house, than as a servant, but Christ as a son over his own house. Now whose house we are. The reason why thus himself by his spirit builds it is held forth in that one world. It is his own house. And therefore... He will oversee the doing this himself and will do it that none shall share in the glory with him although he useth them. So do you hear what what he's saying? Of all the other things that man does, and there are some great things that man has done in in, in building things and and discovering the ways in which the human body works and so you can treat certain ailments and and building roads and bridges and, and sending men to space and looking at the the smallest things in in this created world in a microscope and discovering how all those things work. And God orders all those things according to the physical laws and the physical precepts that he has sort of hardwired into creation. But there is something distinct about the building of his kingdom. It is because that kingdom is not of this world. That kingdom is not physical in an absolute sense. There is a certain physicality to it expressed in the local church. But the kingdom is, Jesus said it, that kingdom is not of this world. Kingdom is distinct from. So there is a universality of God's providential rule, but then there is a particularity of God's providential rule. And this doctrine of divine providence is is of great importance. And in fact, I dare say if we don't if we don't wrestle with these things and, and come to um, a, a robust understanding of the doctrine of providence and how God uses means, even in the spiritual realm, he still uses means. And if we don't really root ourselves in that, then we, c- we come to later sections in the confession, we're going to struggle. So things like the, the, the chapter on saving faith. How is it that God produces saving faith? We confess that it is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. See, there's a means to accomplish a spiritual end, but it is still God building the house. If, if, if God's Spirit does not work powerfully and actively through the ministry of His Word, who will ever believe? Who will ever come to faith? You know, I've been uh, amazed over and over and over again how our, our study in Sunday school, particularly in this doctrine of providence, has dovetailed with the, the sermon that I will be preaching just shortly. And in here we have a, a reminder that God rules in, in a special way for the care of his church and for the good thereof. And so we see, our, we're going to see in the sermon, our Lord Jesus walking on water. Here's, here's a miraculous overcoming of limitations of the physical world for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his people, and for the particular special care of his apostles. God certainly makes use of means, and ordinarily he uses means for all of creation, but after a more special manner, 
he uses means, both physical and spiritual, to accomplish his divine will for his church. May the Lord give to us as his people a comfort in that. That we are not laboring in our own strength. He has not charged us to build a church, for example. He's doing that. Now He's given us means, so I want you to be faithful to do this. And what does Jesus say? I will build. And I will build such that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so we can take comfort, and, and again, there's such a it's, a, it's a very short paragraph here, but oh, so sweet are the promises contained here. After a most special manner, the providence of God taketh care of his church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. So yes, even sin and evil and wickedness. In the world at large, God uses that still for the edification, the purification, for the welfare of his people and his church. Sometimes in mysterious ways that we cannot observe. Sometimes we reserve that only in retrospect. Any Christian history buff will tell you that it's in the seasons of intense persecution in which the church seemed to flourish and grow the most. Now, I don't think anybody in those times of persecution was saying, woohoo, we've been looking forward to this. But God used it, didn't he? And he's done this over and over and over again. Some of that is recorded in the pages of Scripture. Some of it we find later in, in post-biblical times, post-apostolic times when we've seen that, where we can, uh, in, with, the, with the lens of history, the lens of, 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 of backward viewing, we're able to see God's providential rule and how he blessed and prospered his church as a consequence of that. He's accomplishing his divine will. So it ought to be a matter of special comfort and encouragement to us as Christians. This is why James could make this seemingly crazy kind of statement. Brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, that you may be made mature and complete, lacking nothing. So James recognized, here's here's the spiritual reality, that God will use external, physical, worldly circumstances to test and try and, and... to purify his people and build us up in his name. And that is is a cause for great encouragement if we will only uh, believe that and give our hearts to a meditation of that fact. Because otherwise, what's the alternative? Despair. Hopelessness. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes a heart grow sick. And, and if, if, if not just in, in an immediate circumstance of our lives, but in, in, the, in the big picture, if our hope is deferred, if our hope is not resting in a divine providence that does, in fact, rule and reign redemptively and physically in all things, then our hearts grow sick, don't they? We grow discouraged. We look at the headlines and we, 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 we feel that anxiety rise up in us. And it can be a great help to us to remember and to meditate upon God's providential rule of all things. We'll close there. Are there any final questions on providence? Emerson. Yes. Uh, now, we we don't... We don't say, and I think we have to be careful in our distinction, we don't say that the church is the kingdom. The Westminster Confession makes, makes that assertion, but I don't think that's quite right. The, the, the church is not the kingdom, but it is the visible expression of the kingdom, and there's a distinction there. But So as God rules and reigns spiritually in and among his people, as he governs his church, both physically and, and spiritually, he is, he is 
revealing that kingdom by further steps. Yes, yes. It's foolishness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and I, and I would... So the question is... Is the kingdom of God going to be veiled until God's return? Um, I would consider myself a more optimistic amillennialist in this sense. Um, I do believe that God is revealing his kingdom by farther steps. I do believe that the gospel will have a measure of success in this age. I do believe that we, we still are called and tasked as his church to proclaim that gospel to, to every nation. And so as we see, according to God's providence, the gospel take root, then more and more, in, in, both in individual hearts, because there may be today a pagan on the other side of the world that none of us has ever met, and he may hear the gospel of Jesus Christ today and believe it. And that way the kingdom is revealed in yet another human soul. But secondarily, as communities are established, as churches are planted and established. We see the, a visible expression of the kingdom of God being revealed by, again, by further steps. So where a church is established perhaps for the very first time, a true gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church is established, that's a, that's a further revelation of the kingdom. So I don't, I don't think it's necessarily going to be remain veiled entirely, but it is certainly true the full glory of the kingdom will remain veiled. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. I'm not. Um, it, was, it looks good, though. Yeah, it looks good. Matthew, what was your... So, so the so the question, if I make sure I'm hearing and understanding correctly, the question is basically how how do we respond both to brothers and sisters, but also to even our unbelieving neighbors, with respect to what, what kind of confidence can we have that the the world will will remain? I mean, so I, I think about the the some of the environment environmental sort of rhetoric and dogma. Uh, that has, I mean, we're not the first generation to have this. I remember as a, as a kid hearing about the hole in the ozone layer and kind of looking outside thinking, is it, is it above us? I don't see it. Um, but this, this doom and gloom, this, 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 it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a religion of catastrophe, and it is a religion. But, but it's this idea of catastrophizing human activity with respect to the very created order that if, if you know, back then, if you use aerosol hairspray or aerosol deodorant, then the world was going to come to an end. I mean, quite literally, that's what was being taught. Well, now, if you don't switch over to an electric car, the world's going to come to an end. If, if you don't, if you don't cut, you know, get rid of your gas stove, the world's going to come to an end. I mean, and, and that's not even hyperbole. Many are saying the earth will collapse, or that humanity will come to an end because the environment can't sustain those things. And so we can, speaking both to the encouragement of our brothers and sisters, but also to 
the, the mass of humanity around us, we can say on the authority of God's word, that isn't true. That there is going to come a time when, when God is going to judge the world in righteousness. And there is going to be a destruction. It's not an annihilation. He's bringing in a new creation. But the, the reality is God is, is, that will only happen according to God's decree, by God's timing, and by God's means. It's not because our carbon footprint was too big that the world has come to an end. It will be because God, in an act of judgment, has brought these things to pass. Peter tells us that it will be melting, that that judgment will be with fire. Fervent heat, which of course recalls what significant judgment event in the Old Testament? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Because there are two main judgment events in the Old Testament, right? The flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. Water and fire. God has promised not to destroy the earth by water. But he has said, through the apostle, that he will destroy the world by fire. But it will not be by ozone. It will not be by fossil fuels. It will not, I mean, I, I'm, I think as Christians, we have a duty to, to practice stewardship. There is a kind of environmentalism that Christians ought to embrace. It's not what we see. There's, there's, a, there's a stewardship, there's, there's, a, there's a, a management, a conservation, old school conservation that we ought to embrace. I'll close with this. One other footnote in our, in our, in our confession on this particular paragraph, and it's, it's a very short verse, verse 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. But listen to what the apostle says here. He says, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially for those who believe. What does he mean? It means providentially he's ruling and governing, saving in the sense of perpetuating life. And, and providing the, the opportunity for human justice in this age. Imperfect, but, but still present. And so in that sense, he is a savior to all men. He, he maintains the breath in our pagan neighbor's lungs. He maintains their heartbeat. He maintains the, 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 the flow of blood and the oxygen and all that that body needs to continue to survive. And yet, in a, especially for those who believe... Paul's saying there is a particular way, a more profound way, and ultimately an eternal way that God saves his own people. So let's close there. We'll pick up next week. Lord willing, we'll begin looking at the fall of man. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for your mercy to us. We're grateful for the assurance that you rule and you govern all things, from the greatest to the least, and that after a most special manner, you rule and you govern in such a way that your church prospers, that your people are guarded and protected, that we will be preserved by your own mighty hand and outstretched arm until the day of our Lord's return to your own glory and to the praise of your name, we ask these things. Amen.